On this episode of Stuff That Matters, we're joined by Keith Cartwright. He's the Adverse Childhood Experiences Coordinator with Virginia Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services. He also works part-time as the Alcohol and Drug Education Coordinator at Randolph-Macon College. He has his own blog, rkcwrites.com, where you can follow his experiences and his story. It's a story that Keith wasn't always comfortable with and one in which he didn't always know how to tell. But through his life, the challenges he faced, and different paths he followed shaped who he is today. We talk about his background from his time at Ohio State, coming to the realization about his past, experiencing an alcohol issue when he was younger, understanding himself on a more intense level. We dive into his introduction into adverse childhood experiences services, commonly known as ACEs. Keith discusses how much of an impact having his two sons had on his journey on both his personal and professional life. We talk about his blog, what led to writing, and the peace he finds in writing, sharing his thoughts. Keith was incredibly vulnerable and open. He's immensely self-aware and was so gracious during this conversation. So please enjoy hearing about a life of growth, learning, and more than anything else, a life of gratitude. So here he is, Keith Cartwright. stuff that matters. We are joined today by Keith Cartwright, Adverse Childhood Experiences Coordinator with the Virginia Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services. Keith, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, I'm grateful to be here. Really excited about this conversation. And and Keith, you also know a lot of dirt about Mike O'Connor, right? (laughs) Absolutely. And if we just want to make the whole show about that, like I've got plenty of material, but folks would be left wanting part two. So yeah, I don't know how much time we have, but I figure we got to air some of that at some point. But. That, that, that could be that could be the B side of, of this podcast. Could be. So, Mike, and I, I'll let you have the honors, my friend. Sure. So, so Keith, uh, despite the last comment, thank you again for joining us today. <laughs> um, when we started out on this storytelling adventure, myself, Patrick, and Matt, we started brainstorming a list of individuals in this space, right, that work for kids and families um, that would be a, an interesting, intriguing guest, somebody that we we really felt could carry a conversation, but also offer our listeners some insights and some great information. And at the top of my list was you. Um, you know, you've, you've been a mentor, supervisor for me, a coworker, colleague, a friend, and just your professional work experience and who you are led me to that invite. Um, so maybe we just open up the floor, Keith, by you just talking a little bit about, open up this conversation, you talking about maybe your professional history and kind of where where you are today. You've done a lot. Yeah, well, mine's uh, an unlikely journey if we <laughs> look where I came from and how I got here today. I graduated from... Ohio State University with a business degree. Um, (laughs) After an 11-year, four-year degree, I spent a lot of time drinking. Today, I know I spent a lot of time problem drinking. Mm. Then, you know, one day after, like, 
when you're in college for 11 years, you can start to pretend like I'm just going to be here forever. Well, then one one day I accidentally ended up with this degree. Like I was graduated and they told me this is over. And so I have this business. Keith, you have to leave. Right, right. You've, you've milked every degree every year. You're not getting a PhD no matter how long you stay. Right. Lord, no, that was not on the table. Um, but here I was with this business degree that I nothing in me wanted a business degree. Like that was the, that was the cruel irony of the whole thing. I'd finally finished and the end product was this thing I had no desire to have. And it was shortly after that. So I grew up in Ohio. It was shortly after that. I um, saw an ad in the Columbus dispatch. I have two teenage sons. I always have to tell them that's a newspaper. Like we used to have to hold something <laughs> to read job ads. They didn't ping us on our phone. And this ad was for a youth counselor, 24 hours a day, five days a week, living in the woods, at-risk kids, 16 grand a year, free room and board. Now, this was early 1990s. So even, even by early 1990s standard, like that was that didn't have you're gonna get rich written all over it. <laughs> and and nothing about that ad should have said, Keith, this is all you. But everything in it just felt like something was pulling me to this job. So I went, got on an airplane, flew down to North Carolina. And this job, particular job interview, which like is one of my first ones that I've come to discover, like not all job interviews are like this because they just picked you up and put you in the woods with a group of kids for 48 hours. And... So I spent 48 hours in the woods with a fairly problematic group of young people. And immediately after that, they they offered me the job. Now, in that moment, I thought, you know, like I must have been pretty impressive because they offered me the job right away. As my Eckerd career went on, I realized like I was in the earliest game of Survivor. Anybody who survived that weekend got offered a job. job. So yeah. I... Um, that's where I did. So, and and really in my mind, as I look back and kind of reflect on it, I, I think the main appeal at that time was that they wanted a two-year commitment. It was it was on the coast of North Carolina. So we vacationed at the beach. So in my mind, shoot, I can do anything for five days and get a two-day vacation at the beach every weekend. And in my mind, like I thought I can just go here and hang out for a couple of years and still avoid having to like do real life, which I had gotten really good at and was starting to panic. I might have to do real life. And and so I did it. And, um, you know, long story short, my two years became 13 years. I, you know, rose up through the ranks of, you know, the leadership and to eventually having some supervision over several programs in North Carolina. Um, and I can look back and know, like I went there with that whole cliche. Like, I just want to go, I just want to go change a life, you know? And, and the life that got changed the most in that experience was mine. And it's a, it's a change I continue to lean into today. Some of the work we'll talk about later um, absolutely is informed by my experience with with Eckerd back in the early mid nineties, all the way to 2007. But towards the, about the 13th year of that, 
Um, when I had more responsibilities, I was traveling a lot. Um, I was married at the time. We had our first our first kid, and I remember I remember driving home. I, I'd been out traveling, doing something around the state. I remember driving home, and um, Elliot, that's my my newborn. His, his mom put him on the phone. Like he was six months old. And he's on the phone making all these sort of babbling noises. And and like in that moment, I knew like I just spent 13 years listening to young men talk. Many of them talk about how challenging it was to not have a dad around and, and not have someone like that in their life. And by the time I got home, I had decided I'm not doing this anymore. And I remember telling Elliot's mom that and she was like, OK, uh, like. I hear what you're not going to do, but what are you going to do? I'm like, I have no idea. Like, I don't, but I just know I'm going to be a part of of Elliot's life. Um, so that fast forward led to um, us moving to Virginia. Her parents, Elliot's grandparents lived here. Grandparents were both really important in both of our lives. And so um, my family was in Ohio. I was not going back to Ohio after experience Southern, you know, Southern winters. So Virginia was on the map further South. <laughs> so that's, that's where we landed. And um, like my first job here, I work, I went to work for the city of Richmond and management analyst in parks and recreation. Like you couldn't have got any further removed from what I had just spent 13 years doing. Um, and the, a lot of good things happened in those those five years. Mainly, I had a great boss who I she was just a huge mentor to me. Everything else was very political, which was out of my comfort zone. Um, I probably spent most of that five years wondering, like, what the heck? Like, I'm, I was still hearing hearing the mom say, like, what what are you going to do? I was still not sure. Five years later, um, and that's when I stumbled into some. Grant, I led a, a grant project where we lived to help. Um, it was targeting underage drinking and driving and crashes. And I did that for about three years. But it was that that grant that um, it was managed by the office that I work in now at the state. And when the grant ran out, um, my boss at the state at that current, my former boss for most of the time I've been there, at that time, um, signaled to me that there was a job opening up in that office, um, and I took it. And it was most of it around substance abuse prevention. Um, and at the same time, I got connected with the college doing similar work. So I've been in both of those roles now for, like I said, about about eight years. And um, that's kind of that's kind of the journey how. I got there, and then sort certainly over the last eight years, my my work life at the state has changed dramatically in a way that's changed my life dramatically. All of it having to do with this introduction, um, and then this story and journey into uh, you know whatever you want to call it: adverse childhood experiences, childhood trauma, developmental adversity, whatever. Um, that's, that's my life today. It's my personal life. It's my professional life. It's, it's my life.
Oh, it's awesome, Keith. I love love your story. So I'm um, and I hope this does not create any tension. So I'm a Michigan guy. I grew up in Michigan for 20 years, um, but and I always got speeding tickets every time I drove through Ohio. Like every time I drove through, I was one mile an hour over. If I had a Michigan license plate, I'm getting a speeding ticket. But I actually I was um, a little aimless in college, majored in everything I could finally defaulted to the major that I had them that I just randomly took the most credits in. But I, at some point I took a career readiness assessment because um, I was actually, I was a youth pastor at the time and then went through a bit of a existential crisis and didn't want to work in a religious organization. And so I was completely unemployable and had no idea what I wanted to do. Took a career readiness thing my senior year. And they said, you should be an Eckerd residential counselor. And you should move to North Carolina. Um, just I, and it specifically said Eckerd at that point, Eckerd Youth Alternatives, that that was the ideal thing for my it's awesome, personality. yeah. So, I, I talk about you know, when Mike came from the Eckerd, and Mike and I've known each other for a long time, there is some synergies there, probably in our yeah, in our bones, um, around that kind of work. So, yeah, well, I will clarify that, like, I'm not a huge I did most of my college work at the University of Toledo. Ohio State was just sort of this whole, I only got eight classes left. I got to get it done. So I'm not a huge Buckeye guy. When it comes to sports allegiances, like I'm I'm go Irish. I'm all Notre Dame. It's the only thing left of my Catholic upbringing. So that's, so nobody going to offend me by saying go Michigan. Again. No, I'm good. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there. I mean, again, I'm fascinated by the, the Eckerd piece. It seems like one of the through lines is a passion around the substance use and, and the and the alcohol piece and could you just go a layer lower than that again you know the 11 year four year stint uh, you know is um is obviously kind of funny on one point but they're probably looking back to some of it that wasn't fun just just open that up a little bit if you can yeah yeah well and again that that's a story that I've been making a lot of sense of, you know, the last six, seven years of my life. My life's taken a, a huge turn, you know, the last six, seven years. It all really started with, um, so I'm in this role, substance abuse prevention. And, and a lot of that was education, you know, billboards, PSAs, handing stuff out at health fairs. I mean, that's kind of what the prevention world did for you know a couple of decades just say no to just say no to drugs and we were putting together all the materials to say why that's a good idea and I was at a conference and, and again like it's just all these things that happen that really just fall in place and in a way that I know that there's something been guiding this journey much bigger than me but we were at this conference and it was a beautiful day up at the Gaylord National Hotel in, in DC. And so I was sitting with a colleague and I told her, hey, like if anybody's looking for me this afternoon, just kind of cover for me because it's too nice. Like I'm going to go run around Gaylord National, kind of take the afternoon off from these breakout sessions. Well, before I could leave, I was just kind of rifling through the the program and just looking at the afternoon sessions, probably in case like somebody asked me, I could sound like I knew what was going on in the afternoon. But I saw this little advertisement for an afternoon session on adverse childhood experiences. And and, and all my years, 13 years working with Eckerd, all my years doing substance abuse prevention, never in my life had I heard this term, 
adverse childhood experiences. So I, I said, I'm, I'm going to this session. Like I've got to, I've got to hear this. And, and of course you, you all under, you all know, you know, what this work of adverse childhood experience talks about. So when I, when I sat in this room and heard this man start talking about the connection between the things that happened to us in childhood and the earliest years of our life, and then the decisions we make later in life and the health implications of that later in life, like I'm sure, I'm sure something in my life maybe overwhelmed me as much as that did. I can't recall what it was. Like I literally stood out in the hallway after that and I knew like my life had changed and I'm a spiritual man. So that was a piece of it, but it was, it was much deeper than that. If you can get deeper than a spiritual moment, but like my, my life started making rapid fire sense to me in a way it never had before. And so going back to your question, like most of my life, I had slowly come to a point where I realized that probably for two decades of my life, what everybody kind of wrote off as just a college drinking phase was a drinking problem. Yeah. Um, and people will ask, like, were you an alcoholic? And I'm like, well, I don't know. Like, I don't even know what the term, but when you love alcohol so much that it's destroying your opportunity for an education, when it's destroying relationships, like it don't even matter what the name of it is. Like it was it was problematic. I had my first drink when I was 12 years old. I share this story a lot. Like it's one of the, like the brain, when we talk about the developmental brain and, and especially the implications of things that happen that early in life, to this day, one of the best feelings I can remember having in my life was taking that drink at 12 years old. And, and, you know, now I know a lot, like if you, if you're somebody who's experienced some challenges early in life, if you, if you're somebody that maybe has some pain in your life, there's a much better chance that alcohol is going to bring something to you in the way of soothing and feeling good that it may not bring to another 12 year old. Right. Um, so that was one of the first things that started to make sense to me. And, and a lot of the things that had happened early in childhood, certainly a lot of the decisions I made for two decades as a drunk were things that really filled me with a lot of shame at different times, a lot of guilt at different times. And certainly with that, beating myself up a lot of times. Um, but in that moment, when you start to kind of understand this connection, it, do it doesn't give you an excuse. It doesn't give you some free pass. But when you can start to make sense of your story, you can start to bring yourself some forgiveness. You can start to look at yourself in a healthier way. So that was sort of this first piece. And what I say, I get to present a lot and teach a lot on this. And what I've really come to conclude in a lot of this is that like, we are really ill-equipped to understand anybody else in our life as fully as we could and probably as fully as they need us to, if we don't fully understand ourselves. And in a moment, like I really be, I really began to understand those Eckerd kids. Like, and even, even the, you know, all those years I was working with them intuitively, like you hear these kids' stories and you know, 
dear God, that's that's got to have something to do with this behavior. But when you start to understand just the depth of that connection, not just the biology of it, the neuroscience of it, the like the fact that it's this is just wired into them. And again, I didn't suddenly say, oh, well, they weren't bad kids or they weren't making mistakes. Like it's not just this blanket excuse, but I've come to believe like our our job ain't to make an excuse. Like we're all in this work we do because I think like we want to be healers. Like, and I tell people all the time, you can't judge and heal at the same time. And I spent a lot of time judging kids, which means like, if you judge in behaviors, you're, you're ill-equipped to heal them, to help them heal. And so by understanding that about myself, like I had been judging myself a lot in life and been subjected to a lot of judgment in life. Once I kind of understood that connection in my own life, um, it helped me reframe a lot of the work I did with with those young people at Eckerd's and then certainly put me on a different path to how I understand every human being on this planet today. Yeah, it sounds, I mean, profound is an understatement. It sounds like the life, like the seminal moment of your journey, which is um, fast, you know, that, that's so fast. How old were you when you got that ACEs exposure when that uh, I was probably 52, 53. Okay. All and right. in many ways it was, you know, some days I go back and forth, like did life start that day or was that part two? And that's a bit dramatic. I've got two sons and both of those experiences were, were life part one, part what have right. you. But I, I can never, I can never overstate the, the significance of that, of that moment. And Tying it back to the unlikelihood that I would end up at an Eckerd youth camp in the middle of the woods in eastern North Carolina with a business degree. Those two things are not unrelated or disconnected at all. So, um, yeah, what comes to my mind, I don't know if it's a good, it's not necessarily a great analogy, but it almost feels like the Matrix, like at the end of Matrix, when you just start seeing everything connected in a different way, just, yeah. just the lights, and you can't go back. You can't now un you can't see the world not through a lens of aces moving forward. You can't even see your own life. And um, it's just, uh, man, what a great thing. Cause it seems like such an unburdening moment for you. It sounds like you were probably carrying around a lot of weight, even though you were out there doing incredible work and you probably helped change the lives of hundreds of people. But it seems like there was some kind of great, like unburdening that happened in that moment. Yeah, and it's why I really appreciate the way you all have framed this and the way Mike kind of introduced this and the way he introduced Patrick. Like, what I've come to understand is that we're all, every one of us, are running around with stories in our lives. And, like, left to our own devices, like, we aren't going to tell ourselves good stories about ourselves, which puts us in a position we probably, if you can't tell a good story about yourself, you're probably not going to tell a good story about somebody else. And... Like we are all storytellers. We are weaved together with our stories. And so why not? Why, and and I wouldn't want to go back. Like I, I would have no desire to go back to the day that I didn't like have that moment where I started to understand my story. Um, because I, I say this all the time, like I'll be standing in the grocery store now, literally I'll be standing in line and people be in front of me and I'll be like, I wonder what his story is. I wonder what her story is. Because 
I heard somebody say this recently and it just like, it made so much sense to me. Like I'm sitting here looking at you three gentlemen right now. And it would be easy to say like Matt and Pat and Mike, like you all just showed up today with today's life, but you're all sitting there with your whole lives. We bring our whole lives to this moment. And if I think in understanding that, we're at a much better chance to be empathetic towards people because the things that irritate us about people are usually these things that are happening in the here and now. But when we remember the here and now may have part of this other parts of their life that they kind of brought with them in their suitcase today, you can at least start to, to entertain the possibility that this isn't about me and this isn't, I shouldn't be taking this personal, you know? My wife working at New Hope is to provide students with support in the social, emotional, and academic aspect of their life. My why for being here is because these kids need somebody to hear them and see them. My why is I've been in the communities for so long with the residents, now I get the opportunity to work with the families and meet the families. My why is I like to help. I think I was born with that in my nature, so I like helping. I help everyone in the building, as well as our residents and their families. My why is because I want to create a safe environment, a comfortable environment for my students to be able to learn and grow. I put smiles on kids' faces that I love seeing every single day. I am at New Hope because this is a place that inspires change for young kids and for adults. I'm here in New Hope working to make a difference in these young girls and boys' lives, giving them an example of what a role model should be and leading them and guiding them in the right direction. My why for being in New Hope is the residents. I love the kids. It's awesome. My why is seeing the change and the process being made. It's just awesome to see them come in, not want to be here. Then they get here, it's like being a family. One of the things, and Matt, who who oversees our residential services, amongst other things, and one of the things I've thought about a lot about recently, like my little piece of this new hope puzzle is the referral to admission piece, right? My team manages that process. And there's occasion where I have to own that process. If somebody's on time off or somebody's on vacation, Mike, I get to read every single referral that comes into our referral system. And I leave those days tired, somewhat exhausted, you know, exhausted, puzzled, bewildered at the experiences the kids that are being referred to us have had. I also look at those days and think to myself, boy, if John Q. Public and Jane Q. Public could understand what else, what, what could understand the lives of these children, we would understand that would be front and center, the issues and the problems that we need to tackle today. And that might be a little bit of a romantic perspective, but I believe, I believe that I I think of, I think of things that I see on social media. I think of my neighborhood where people complain that the trash cans weren't put directly on the curb and they were a little too far out in the road. (laughs) And then after a day of reviewing referrals to a PRTF level of care, I think nobody really understands what the true problems are that we're facing. Right. Um, Obviously not a question there, but the adverse child 
childhood experiences, you found out about it in your fifties. Yeah. In your current role, like how do we educate the masses about adverse childhood experiences? Yeah. And I, I do want to ask my, like, that that's where I was going to. I mean, this has been out this has been out there since the late nineties, early two thousands, certainly, pretty widely known. It's kind of incredible that it's still not as prominent when all these other things, even even like social issues and issues of mental health have become kind of sexy and, and very popularized. Like just the fact that ACEs is still something I think people are discovering for the first time in 2023. Just like, I don't, I don't get it. My brain fries kind of like my, cause it, it does feel like it would be this awakening potentially. Um, yeah. Any, any, yeah, same question, but I, I just wanted to reiterate the same thing. I'm just like, man, if this was your experience. Yeah. Um, like, how, well, how we I, I feel so and I may get a little long-winded here, but I think it's important. And your question is important. So one, like I am, I was extremely blessed. So when I went to that conference and heard this information, I went back to my boss the next day and I walked into her office and I said, I said, here's the deal. Like if we're going to continue to do this work in substance abuse prevention, I just heard something. And if we leave that out, the very best case is we're leaving something important out. Worst case scenario is we're doing everything all wrong. Mm -hmm. And I believe today we were doing everything all wrong. And part of my job and opportunity has been to shift some of that. My boss, who just retired six, nine months ago, at that, that boss, she, she looked at me and said, okay, Keith, we'll go do something about it. I'm like, <laughs> okay. So the first thing I did was what everybody does when they have a question. I Googled adverse childhood experience trainers. And the first name that came up was um, Ace Interface, founded by Dr. Robert Anda. So one of the principal investigators of the original Ace study and a woman by the name of Laura Porter. So they had this company, Ace Interface. They went around state to state trained cohorts of trainers and presenters to go across their state and spread what I come to call the, the gospel of ACEs. But I made this phone call to Laura Porter and I said, so, okay, why, like, why you all? And she said, Keith, just let me tell you. She said, I did your job in the state of Washington. I did what you're doing right now. I did that for 10 years in the state of Washington. And we went around talking, you know, anti-drug, safe, safe drinking, underage, blah, 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 all of the substance specific sort of conversations. I don't say that to minimize those, but her point was like for 10 years, we're having those conversations and nobody shows up for the conversation. She mm. said, the moment we started talking about ACEs, trauma, childhood adversity, she said it eventually that like we didn't have room for the number of people who wanted to come be a part of that conversation. Now, at the time I said, well, that's probably a nice little selling point you have here, but it's it's been some of the most prophetic words that in my work life I've ever heard, because that's exactly what's been happening hmm. in Virginia. I find myself in arenas having this conversation in front of people I never could have had. Um, 
So I say that to say they came, well, I went back to my boss and said they they cost a lot of money. They sent her faces the people we want. They cost a lot of money. And she looked at me again and said, Keith, like, quit bothering me. Just go do something about this. So Goodbye. I'm really grateful that Goodbye. I had like free reign, like to go pursue this. Dr. Anda came and he was the one who gave me my initial training in this work. And I will never forget what he said. And here's here's where things I think start to answer why this isn't an aha moment for a lot of people. Because you're right, Matt, like this, the original study was done in the mid 90s. You know, Nadine Burke Harris has a pretty famous TED talk that kind of brought some momentum to it. Um, but Dr. Anda, in the first presentation, he called this work the science of empathy. And when I go do these presentations for people and largely built on that sort of foundation, I tell people, like, I know they warn you up front. You've been in some trainings and many of those trainings, you're going to have trainers who want to take knowledge they have and put that knowledge in you. I said, that is not my goal today. I am smack dab coming after your hearts because somebody came after my heart once and because they got it, I got invested in learning everything I could about this work. But if your heart isn't changed in this, no matter what I teach you, you're not going to go out and treat people and interact with people and heal people the way I think this work challenges us to do. And that's been my approach. And so here's, in the beginning, like a lot of the teaching and training was was heavy into the, the study itself. Like, here's what the study said. Here's the clear link between kind of the dose of adversity you have early in life and the connection to these health outcomes. But the more I started looking at that, like, I'm a why person. Like, I get that. But what what is the connection there? Like, why is that connection so strong? And where I am today, and this is a very abbreviated version of like some conversations I have for a couple of days. And this is what does not get talked about enough, I think, in this, which is where we miss the opportunity to help touch people's hearts. Because again, I look back on my own life. So we we all come into the world as babies, right? Like I'm, I, I open every presentation, like we've all experienced trauma. Like we were all babies hanging out in a nice dark womb. Like life was kind of cool. Like Mike that day when he's had to do all this work, I think he'd just rather go home and crawl in a womb and just like relax. And yeah. But then comes birth. Like we're birth. Like every baby comes out, there's bright lights, there's noise. And they're like, what the heck's going on here? This ain't what the last nine months. And they're scared and they're nervous. And they are looking for safety. That's what they're looking for. They're looking to be soothed. And in that moment, in that first moment, they start to predict whether the relationships in my life, because the only thing that soothes a baby is another human being. There is no other way to soothe a baby outside of another human being. And so that baby then, through the wiring of his brain, starts to predict whether 
human beings are going to be something that soothes me and comforts me and something that I will be drawn to as part of my safety. Or if you don't get some of those things, if you end up having a life of some of the stories Mike was reading about, right. you start to say, this relationship thing, that ain't healthy. Like if I'm going to stay safe, because we are all looking for safety. For some of us, we get wired to know that's in relationship with other people. For some, it's like, I got to keep away from people. I got to keep my distance because we're all common ground wanting to stay safe. And where that really was powerful for me, and again, at 50 some years old, starting to understand I'd been in kind of a challenging marriage for many years, challenging relationships all over the place for many years. Like I know today now, I look back and say, like outside of my two sons, really, I'm very limited in the number of deep, meaningful, close relationships I've had in my life. But here's here's the thing. Like whatever relationship patterns we form in those early years, those are the relationship patterns we take with us. Like we don't go to middle school and say, okay, it's time to develop a new relationship pattern unless somebody gets in there and works that with you, which isn't often the case. You don't go into a marriage or you don't go into a friendship and say, oh, okay, well, I trust this, this person. I'm going to start developing a new relationship pattern. So I've come to say that the main implication of ACEs, I believe, personally, and there's a lot of science to back it up, that the greatest protective factor we all have over our lives is each other, is human relationships. And the greatest healing factor we all have in our lives is each other. Like if my life is a mess, but I get somebody who comes in and walks beside me, like my life's not going to be as big a mess as somebody else who doesn't have somebody. But what adverse childhood experiences does to us, what trauma is it makes us really difficult to have the things that mean the most to our well-being. It complicates the road to having meaningful relationships. And that's why, you know, I read the Surgeon General sending a report out, 85-page report on the loneliness epidemic. Like, mm. we're not getting better at this. We're getting worse at this. He says the loneliness epidemic's at an all-time high. I go around the state and... The, and I'm, I know you all experience this too, the mental health crisis amongst our youth, the suicide rate amongst our youth, higher than ever. We did a survey here of 5,000 young adults last year. 65% of the 5,000 said, if I have something hard going on in my life, I don't have anybody to talk to about it. And I think this is the general generational implications of the adversity we face in our life, this inability to or unwillingness to bring hard conversations into the home or into the classroom or into the church or into the office. Like we're running around trying to avoid the hard conversations that are going to pull us together. And most of the time, it's because none of us have really any idea how to do that. And often that will trace back to the adversity and the traumas we faced early in our life that made it easier for us to hide from relationship instead of connect with it in those emotional and powerful conversations that would, would have given us a whole healthier outlook on relationships. So I'll go back to your question. 
like when I go to ACES presentations with somebody like that's not me, and I'm not here saying I'm the one who does that best. There's a lot of people who do it well, but many people I go listen to, you're going to get a PowerPoint on the science. You're going to see graphs and charts. You're going to get the brain science, but not many people are going to go where I just went. And that is like, we all kind of suck at relationships, which is really, really bad because we all need them. Like there's nobody out there who doesn't need that as the primary form of health in their life. Um, And I just don't think those graphs and charts speak to people, but what does speak to, when I sit in a room full of 50 people and I say, man, we are all broken. We all kind of suck at relationships. There ain't a bunch of hands that go up, but there's a line afterwards saying, man, like I get it. And it's usually men. Like it's usually men who are saying, I get where you're coming from. Yeah, it sounds like some of these things uh, historically aim for the head and you're aiming for the heart, which is very yes. Yeah. Keith, I, I wanted to change gears here real quick. You, you've mentioned briefly uh, the impact your children uh, have had on you. Uh, if you could just, you know, dive into that a little bit more, uh, your two sons uh, and, you know, overall, uh, how they kind of shaped, I guess, your your, your vision, your, your, your perspective, both, you know, a, a, as a professional and also as a human being as well, a, 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 as an individual, um, you know, bringing two, two sons into this world. Yeah, well, I will start with that. So their mom and I, we got married on the agreement that, like, we would never have kids. <laughs> like that, that was part of the, like, Prenup. We're never going to have kids. <laughs> and about seven years into that, like she changed her mind. She said, we were driving, driving to dinner one night. And she said, um, God told me we're supposed to have kids. I said, well, that's a real problem because like God didn't say nothing like that to me. So either you and God got a little private thing going on, or we got different gods now. Both of them are really, really challenging. But um, wasn't long after that we had, we had, you know, our first Elliot, and so one. Here, here comes this kid. Like I, in my mind, had never, like I never wanted to do this. Of course, by the time he's coming, like I kind of, <laughs> you, you shift gears, like it's yeah. coming, so you're yeah. ready for it. But Elliot, um, he, he was born without a heartbeat, and. Then without, when they were trying to resuscitate him, they collapsed his lungs. Then he he ends up in a helicopter. And this is in Moorhead City, North Carolina, this tiny little hospital. And, you know, I'll never forget, like ever, looking out the window and seeing this helicopter take off, knowing, like, my kid's in there and not having any idea what's, what's going to happen at the other end of that. And, like, the coldest of hearts is going to be pulled into that life in a way that it wasn't going to be. And I'm not, I'm not saying I wouldn't have loved my son. That's not what I'm saying at all, but there was no way of avoiding being attached in love with that kid, the way I was that day. And the um, Nick, you at Pitt Memorial there in Northeastern North Carolina um, over at ECU, like, and Mike, Mike knows this story. Like they, they are my angels, man. I I drove a hundred mile an hour between Moorhead City and and Pitt Memorial, and like I'll never forget. I got I got I got there, and I'm kind of lost. Like I'm <laughs> one, you're foggy anyway. I'm coming kind of roaming around the um, the NICU there in this 
big burly nurse comes up and she just looked, I, I didn't know if she wanted to help me or kill me. Like she just had that sort of mean look to her and kind of like, what are you doing? Like, what are you looking for? And so I told her and she said, well, he's back, back here in the corner. And so we started walking back that way. And then she stopped and she turned around and she looked at me and she said, Oh, by the way, she said, that little boy's going to be just fine. And like, I lost it, you know, I lost it right there. And big, mean, big, mean nurse gave me a hug and, and we went back and, but, and I, I share this picture and, and every presentation I do where I have a fair amount of time to do it. It's the first, first picture of Elliot in this incubator and me looking in there at him and I get a hand reaching in and his eyes are just fixated on me. And I tell people like that, that was this spiritual moment, a philosophical moment. It was all these things. But today, based on everything we just talked about, like, I know that was a scientific moment. Like his brain was starting to register. Like this dude's safe. Relationships are safe. And like, I, I couldn't have articulated this then Patrick, but I can now like, and I've I told somebody this today. Like the definition I, I kind of come to understand love as today. Like, I don't know that I would have ever discovered it if it wasn't for Elliot and Ian. Um, just this desire to constantly um, nurture that connection, protect that connection. Um, and, you know, do some things differently that maybe weren't done for me, like I was motivated to kind of be different in some ways. So, and that's, that's fueled me. Like when you, when you have, like, we all need some, we all need some source of that kind of love in our life. And, and I'm not saying it can only come from kids. Some folks will get that from their spouse or from their families, but um, Elliot, he was my first one. And then certainly love Ian just the same, but I think I think it gives me a reference point for love and sort of this model that I can hope for that every kid certainly gets, but every adult too. Like and and I say like my my number one I get two goals for for my boys. One of them I got very little control over and you know the first one is I I do hope that hope they grow up and know and love God, but that'll kind of be their own journey. The other one is like if they if they ever have anything hard happen in their life, I want them to know they can come to me. I want I want to be one of the first names that crosses their mind because I think of about a lot of things that happened in my life and had, you know, there's I carry things that people close to me still have no idea about that have happened and I've gone through. Um and and largely because I thought relationships were something you stay away from and you don't you don't dare go share and have these kind of conversations. I know how damaging that can be to a life. So I go out of my way to help my boys understand this is a safe space. And safe spaces are what we call love. Like that's that's who and what we we do. Now, will that Will that pay off? Like, I don't know. But all I can do is try to create create that space 
with openness with them and honesty with them. And um, yeah. So, so Keith, that's not an easy thing to accomplish, is it? <clears throat> no, no. <laughs> I mean, even with your background and your experiences, you know, I hear it all the time. I'm, I'm a great observer of human behavior, family behavior, kid behavior, whatever you want to call it. And and it takes some effort and energy and to to do what you're saying. And what mm -hmm. I hear oftentimes is, well, if you're creating that space, if you're taking that approach, um, what do you do when the kids do something wrong? Is punishment out the window? Mm -hmm. how, well, how do you punish them, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, do you ever hear that? I To this day, I hear people say, um, my wife and I have never spanked our kids, have never raised our hands. Yeah. We talk things through. Yeah. Um, but I've I've had people give me feedback. Well, how do they know when they did something wrong? Yeah. I mean, like, you know where I'm going with that? Yeah, absolutely. But again, that's that's generational. That's that's this that's an adult thing. Like, and so I'll, you know spanking and I don't want to go off on you know potentially offend right. anybody here but most conversations I hear around spanking or hitting a child are always from an adult standpoint nobody ever says how is this going to be received by the child nobody ever says how is this going to impact the child's long-term relationship pattern because like, I don't know of any example where somebody is hit where that doesn't produce fear. Like, nobody can ever tell me that hitting someone is a creating safety place. And, like, I always go back, Mike, and you and I can remember when we were working with Eckerd, and um, restraints were allowed. Right. Right. And you would hear some of the same arguments. Well, what are you going to do if this kid, if you can't restrain him? Like you have to be, and I've been one of them who would have said it. Like, what yeah. are you going to do with this kid? Restraint's the only thing you can do. Well, you know what happened is we had an incident, an unfortunate incident. And they said, we're not like, that's, we're no longer doing that. You cannot restrain a kid anymore. Well, you know what people figured out? They figured out, I better learn how to talk to this kid in a way that calms them down or I'm going to have to do some things other than putting my hands on them to resolve this issue. Now, I looked ugly for time, but more and more people started to get better at that and realized, you know what? Like, if you just talk to these kids, young people, in a way that kind of de-escalates it or creates this safe place, there actually can be some things happen healthy that don't involve punishment, that don't. And we sell people short. Like, like my boys, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I can't even remember the last time I would do or we did what I would call punish them. We've had a lot of conversations about right and wrong, the values that we uphold. And, like, we don't give kids enough credit for understanding those conversations, this idea that the only way somebody is going to understand that they did something wrong is to experience something painful, right. to experience some sort of punishment. 
Um, I just personally have discovered, and I got two pretty good boys, and I've never, never put a hand on them. Again, I'm not judging anybody else, but my experiences have led me to decide that's a pretty, pretty healthy thing because I didn't want what 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 a kid remembers usually if somebody's putting their hands on them is anger. Somebody was angry at me, and. They don't walk away saying, I'll never do that again. They walk away saying that person's angry with me. And I need to start finding ways to make that person not angry with me. Because when they get angry with me, there's going to be, right, somebody hitting me. And and I get it. Like, the challenge with that, though, Mike, is like a lot of cases where that's happening is that's that's all anybody's ever seen generation after generation after generation that's that's what they've seen that's what they lean into and all i would say is i get that i understand it but i i would like someday for us to look at the other side of that not just what's the value of punishment what's the impact of certain punishments on a child's experience and their long-term capacity to have loving safe meaningful relationships with people so <clears throat> I think you and I have talked a little bit about this before that the, the general generational thing has kind of got my attention. But one of the things that I hope for is a platform or a forum to educate, help, support families, parents, caregivers around some of these concepts, right? Yeah. Because you're only exposed, and, and pa I'll throw Patrick a question here. I mean, Patrick, before you got on this podcast or before you joined New Hope, ACES is probably not something you'd have heard of as a as a young adult in this world, right? Correct. I'm guessing. Yeah, no. Right. And and I guarantee you, my neighbor across the street there who has two young kids has never heard of ACES. So I think it's invaluable information that people need to have. Um, how do we how do we get that out there? And I've often thought about, and this is a little bit of a pie in the sky thing for me, but a lot of our neighborhoods, especially here in the South, have a clubhouse and a pool. The clubhouse is often used for when Santa comes to town or um, or you know graduation parties. I've often thought about we should host parent or caregiver nights at the clubhouse twice a year that the HOA springs for with pizza and we offer some free education around yeah. aces or trauma-informed parenting or how to navigate the world of social media for your kids yeah so keith yeah. any ideas around there like how do we bring this kind of information to the masses well first you know there's there is no, and I get the, I get asked this a lot. You know, you'll go have this conversation. People have these aha moments, and they'll be like, "Well, what do we do now?" Yeah, and what's next? The, the answer is so broad. I think, I think one, I and I, you know, I'm an advocate more, and I, I didn't see this coming in my life, but I'm a huge advocate now for, and I know your wife, this will resonate with her, like early childhood. I, I say this all the time, like I'm going to get in the car here later. I'm going to drive somewhere and I'm going to have to have a driver's license to do that. But they let me take Elliot home 
without having any idea how his brain was going to develop, the importance of me showing up in a safe way, the power in my life to help when I show up. You know, as, as new parents, we just get like, what time do you feed them? Like, what's the bedtime routine? Like, what do they wear? What's the growth milestones? Nobody talks to you about this idea that 85% of our brain's infrastructure is formed in the first three years of our life. Now, that's not to say it can't change, but it gets harder the older we get. The first three years are so significant. And the thing that is most significant in that is the things we do to help a child feel safe and at ease when they feel unsafe and uneasy. And so that's why it's so important. Like we minimize the importance of showing up and giving them a hug. Like, and we minimize the importance of just making them feel okay. We feel this burden that like, okay, I got you feeling okay. Now I got to teach you. Like, now I got to give you the biggest lesson they need is just to know somebody's there. And I would argue, I tell adults this all the time. If you don't believe that, like if something happens hard in your life today, what's the first thing you're going to want? Not an answer. You're going to want to know somebody is there. Right. And so I think early childhood, like it's that's our opportunity to make mass change. Like we really have to help people understand some different ideas about what having a baby and caring for a baby looks like. We also, this gets back to a point you made earlier that I believe with very, very few exceptions, every mom wants to love their baby. This idea that they're not taking care of the baby because they don't love it or don't want it, bull crap. But if you understand the importance of a mother or a father or a grandparent bringing soothing and caring to that baby, especially in the first three years, because it's going to predict how they interact with people their whole life. And that's not happening. Well, then you have to start asking some questions like what's standing in the way of that? Let's throw out they don't want to. Well, if I'm a mom that's having to work three jobs because I'm living in poverty, like that's an issue. They're they're so focused on those three jobs that they don't have the capacity to bring. Well, you and I know that. Like we, like probably in the grand scheme of things, we don't have some of the bigger stressors in life. But you go home to Maddie or you go home to your, you know, to Kristen. I go home to my boys. Like I'm stressed. And some days, like I am not at my best. Right. But that's a one day deal. Like I had to review these referrals today. Tomorrow I'm going to get back to, if every day I'm trying to figure out how am I going to feed them? I don't have health care. What happens if they get sick? I can't afford it if the car breaks down. Like that is just constant, constant stress. And then you pass that stress on to your child who grows up triggered by the littlest things. And so we can have different conversations around health care, different conversations around access to education, different conversations around the implications of racism. Like we talk about some of these things as, as a topic, but we never talk about what it's done to humans and what sort of stress they're passing down generationally. So I think that's like, if I always say, like, if I had, if I was ever president like that, that would be my big push is, is there. But then to your point, 
like we never outgrow because here's the thing, Mike, even this isn't about just me and my kid. This is about me and you too, right? Because what all this tells us is that for us to have meaningful, healthy relationships with one another, the first thing I have to do is make sure I'm kind of in a a regulated space. Like I'm kind of okay, if I come at you or come up, show up on this podcast and like I'm in a bad mood or I'm stressed or like that's not going to go well. So even with each other, it's a worthwhile conversation to start understanding how of this all works because um, many times what's going, what's standing in the way of us being what we want to be to our kids isn't what we're saying and it isn't what's going on it's how we show up to that moment. And usually it's stressed. Usually it's, it's you know, um, showing our own emotions. Um, and our kids kids can value from something a little different. You know, it's interesting, and, I, and I'll let Patrick get, get in some words here, but Matt earlier today posted a LinkedIn post um, regarding our our supervisors at our treatment facility, right? And the supervisors for us, Keith, they're our master counselors, right? They're the yeah. they're the first line of supervision for our direct care staff, direct care employees. And um, Matt's LinkedIn post was around those supervisors and their leadership responsibilities. Certainly for the kids we serve, but as importantly for the direct care staff that we trust taking care of the kids in our treatment program. And I chimed in on that LinkedIn post and and I and I believe this without a doubt. I was fortunate enough to come into the this workspace with three very good supervising, in our terms, master counselors yeah. that taught me very well how to do group work, how to talk and listen to kids. And and I would tip my hat to Eckerd for that six-week orientation, right? I mean, what job nowadays gives six right. weeks of orientation? Right. But I'm convinced that if I didn't have those three supervisors who weren't in ratio, you know, who could pull me aside and give me in real time training, um, I don't know if I'd be where I am today, sitting here on this podcast, working, you know, working in this space, you know, all the things that came because I was trained well to begin with. But one of those things, getting to my point, that one of those master counselors told me was, hey, Mike, when you're in group, whatever you're feeling, the kids in your group are feeling it times 10 or maybe 100. Right. And so I remembered that for that was in 1994. I remember that to this day that if I come home and I'm a little bit stressed or I am anxious and I'm on edge and maybe I'm slamming the car door or I'm slamming the fridge or whatever it may or may not be the kids observing me are feeling whatever I'm feeling and multiply it out. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's truly had a hand in uh, some successful interactions I've had, not only with my own family, but with people I work with people that I interact with each and every day. Yeah. And that's directly connected to what I was just talking about a minute ago. Cause that's one, that's not a theory. That's, that's scientific. That's biological because if you're a young kid, who's grown up in a very, very stressful environment, you're wired, right? You're wired to anticipate stress. And so if you show up stressed, like literally, you're absolutely right. They're going to feel that because they're looking for it. 
they have to their whole life to remain safe. Their brain has had to wire to anticipate stress where you and I maybe grew up in some spaces where we didn't have to be as vigilant about like what's about to go down here. A lot of the kids we worked with were. And so, and I, that's one of those things. Like I look back and say, Oh my God, now I, now I get that. And, and the other piece, and you know, I'll give a nod to you, Mike, one of the things I've become, I've had opportunities lately to speak about this. And again, I never like saw this come up, but more and more, I've had chances to speak about trauma-informed leadership. And like you are one of the people, and I'm not just saying it because like we're here, but I that came to mind when I've I've thought about this. And and really, so it goes back to the baby example. Like as as when a baby's born, that, that's their first opportunity to look for leadership, right? <laughs> like I'm 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 here now. I need a leader. And what are they looking for out of a leader? Well, they want somebody who knows me. They want somebody who can kind of anticipate if I'm struggling today. They want somebody who will show up with some interest in my life when I'm having that struggle. That's that's what we as humans get wired to look for in leadership. And that doesn't ever change. Like, when you're when your employees or when the people on your team show up today, that's what they're hoping for. They're hoping I got a leader who sees me, who knows me, who can kind of sense if I'm struggling and who will stop whatever our vision and, and plan is for the day long enough to kind of help me get back to a, a better place. Um, and you were always good at that. Like you, you were good at knowing people leading people by making them desire to want to follow you. And that happens when we show up for people in a way that says, man, I'm all in on you. Like this ain't about today's lesson plan or today. And, you know, and I contrast that with, with folks who, and I think parenting can become the same way because there's leaders and there's managers. And if you don't know how to lead and you don't know how to connect with people, and you don't know how to get them to follow you because like we're in this together. Well, then what you resort to is punishment. You do it or I'll fire you. You do this or we'll be going to my office. Like, I don't know how to connect with you, but I know how to kind of intimidate you and then threaten you and make you wish you'd done the job. And like, that's not an employee thing. There's I, I hear folks say that to, to kids, like you'll do it or I'll make you wish you had. Right. And so it gets back a little bit to this parenting style of like you, you either do it as a leader and I try to be a leader dad with with my kids. Um, so I know I went off track a little bit there, but. Um, well, it's this- funny because my my eight year old uh, started playing tackle football this year and he's got some great coaches, right? Three volunteer dads who are really good they're good coaches i'm more enjoying it one of them yells quite a bit um and i'm okay it's nothing egregious but i had another dad (laughs) another dad go well is anybody else as happy as i am that they got an adult male role figure yelling at their kid besides me and i thought hmm that doesn't register with me yeah i don't think i've ever yelled at my kid jack we talk Right. And we sit down and we'll, we'll have right. a discussion about something, but I've not yelled at him. 
Right. And he can probably sense when like, okay, this is kind of a different conversation than right. great job, Jack. But no, my, um, I, I, that resonates with me because my, my Ian is big into lacrosse now and he, like he wants to, wants to be a college lacrosse player. And he's been playing on kind of this rec team where they were all just about skill development. Like but you get emails that, um, like the kids are doing great. We're going to keep bringing them along. I know we weren't competitive this weekend, but that's just part of the journey. So that was his team. Well, there was another team that's, I mean, they, t- they don't hide it. Our focus is we're going to get your kid ready to play college lacrosse. If they come sign up for this, that's going to be the deal. And like the first practice I was out there listening to guys say things like, well, good luck making a D1 team playing like that, you know, yeah. and just, just screaming and 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 I get it. Like I had the conversation with Ian, like you're signing up for this. I'm just gonna tell you, like this ain't my way. Like I wouldn't, but I'm gonna support you. Um, so and and I like Tony Dungy won a Super Bowl without yelling at his guys. So I I do believe there's a way you can do that um outside of that, but it gets back to like what I remember when I hear these these guys coaching this team like that. Like I, I remember, I remember high school football. Like I remember coaches saying, Solly, get, get those water bottles out of here. If these guys can't play any harder than that. Like get the water bottles off the field <laughs> today. There'd be a lawsuit for that. But some of these things, they keep creeping, creeping along with us. And it's this whole idea that like, if I just come down hard on you, if I just threaten you, if I just, and there's nothing that says that works. And in fact, there's a whole lot more that says that's that's just not a healthy approach with anyone. New hope. Our name. Our promise. Founded in 1987 by Dr. George Orvin. New Hope has been a beacon of hope and healing for youth across the country for decades and is committed to expanding our impact across the Carolinas and beyond. At our flagship 150-bed treatment facility in Rock Hill, South Carolina, we provide 24-7 residential behavioral health care to male and female youth with significant mental health challenges. Our team of behavioral health care experts deliver comprehensive care in a safe and structured environment. When a youth enters our care, they are often at the lowest point in their life. They've endured years of trauma and rejection. They have accepted a narrative that their life is hopeless, that they are destined to repeat a cycle of despair. That's where we come in. We are here to provide new hope to every youth in our care. New hope through therapy that breaks down walls and builds up their self-worth. New hope through teachers and education tailored to their unique needs. New hope through round-the-clock medical staff ensuring their physical health. New hope through recreation, play, and new experiences that develop life skills. And new hope through the healing power of positive relationships with every one of our team members. We break cycles. We rewrite life stories. It's our name. It's our promise. We are New Hope.
Mike, before you asked, uh, brought the topic about uh, having platforms for you know those, and this may be not directly related, but uh, Keith, you kind of created a platform for yourself uh, with, with your blog. Just you know, talk about when that started uh, and what I guess ultimately led to you starting that blog and kind of sharing your experiences and your stories, you know, for for, for the public. Yeah, Patrick, like I, I that's that's um, like that's been something I've been reflecting on and figuring out the last few years as well. So the other thing I'll say, I appreciate you pointing that out. I haven't written on that blog in a long time. The last three or four years, I've been writing on um, my blog, um, rkcwrites.com. Mm-hmm. And it's probably, if I would tell anybody to read anything, it would be that one. But to answer your question, um, going back to the Elliot story, so when we when we went, we were at the hospital, we were in the NICU, I guess, for about 10 days. And the NICU had this platform called Care Pages. And so you could write, like I always kind of liked rab- writing and dabbled in it a little bit. It was an outlet for me, but I never did it with any regularity. But I started posting these updates about Elliot's condition from the hospital on this Care Pages place. And I, you know, sometimes I get a little creative with it and like make funny little stories about something he had done. Well, then he went home and I quit writing and I had people reaching out saying like, well, why don't you write anymore? Like we were enjoying that. And so that got me to keep going. And so then the next thing I did, like I was overwhelmed, like the, the feeling I, I described most with, with Elliot and, and Ian too, just being overwhelmed with gratitude. And so I decided like I wanted to live this life of gratitude, like the gratitude I felt for the my, my sons. I wanted that to reflect on the gratitude I just looked at life with in general. And mm-hmm. but it really became I just kept a lot of different stories about the boys and, and it's still there. Like somebody can go to the life of gratitude. Um, but it was kind of hit hit or miss. Um but then back pre-pandemic, so the pre-pandemic storm in my life was the pandemic and all the, all the challenges that came with that. I sprinkled in a, a marriage breakup. So that was part of that. And at the same time, I'm coming to terms with this idea that like, I got a lot of story in me that I've kept bottled up for a long time. And this new version of the blog, this RKC writes, I say up until that blog, many times I wrote around the edges of my life. Like I would, I would write, but making sure like it wasn't going to offend anybody. And even sometimes I'd write in a way that I knew would please some people, even if it might not even been what I thought or believe like I was just writing to people. The new version of it became really it's become a pathway for healing for me for two reasons. One, when I write these days, and I write something pretty much every morning. So I've been keeping that blog for, I guess, again, a little over three years. And I think there's almost a thousand articles on there now. Every one of them was written with me just sitting down, like, what do I feel? What do I think? 
Like, I don't care what Mike thinks about this. I don't care what Patrick thinks about this. I don't care what my family thinks about that. Like, this is, this is me. So if I'm writing it, this is me. Mm. The other thing and a very sort of practical piece, which is why I encourage people to write is part of my story. And I think it's a lot of our stories. Why we have some struggles that we do is we get stories stuck inside us. Like if you don't have an avenue to tell this story that's really been bottled up in you for decades in some cases, and then that story starts to tell you things like, like you're a bad person, you're a monster, or there's shame and guilt. Like writing that story, just putting it out there. And I'm not even saying you got to share it on Facebook or blog like I do. Just write it. Let it come out of you. There's healing There's healing in that. Just like there'd be healing if you go see a therapist. And I'm not saying this replaces therapy, but the healing in therapy is you're going to go tell this story that's been trapped in you. If you have close friends, that same thing can happen. Like that's, that's why it's so important, this vulnerability that you can have, this ability to sit and safely share hard stories. Writing became that avenue for me, absent kind of having the person to sit down and have those conversations with. And then the other thing I would say about that is that I do it almost always in the morning. And so a lot of people have prayer. A lot of people have mindfulness and meditation. All of that, really, you do it to kind of quiet your mind. And again, this gets back to all of this is related. If I have a mind that's kind of maybe more prone than somebody else's mind to get worked up about things, to get emotional about things, because what I've experienced in life, I have to be better at finding ways to quiet my mind. And there's a lot of research and evidence that shows if you pray first thing in the morning, or if you meditate in the morning, or if you do yoga in the morning, if you have some sort of stillness practice, where you just allow your mind to quit racing all over the place, but just just get to a place as close as it can to nothingness. Like that's a great way to start the day. And believe it or not, like writing for me is that like, I'm just, I'm just writing and whatever's coming. I'm there. I'm not focused on my phone. I'm not focused on my calendar. I'm not focused on the boys like for an hour. That's writing becomes my, my meditation. And I'm like, I'm one who, Eight years ago, if somebody said, Keith, you should meditate, I'm like, you are a weirdo. I'm like, what the heck are you talking about? Like, I am not, what are you going to ask me to do next? Hug a tree? <laughs> I get all that now. Like, I really get where folks are coming from. But that looks different from person to person. The whole idea is, though, that whatever whatever that practice is, you're finding a way to quiet yourself. Because what you're doing is you're setting yourself up if something may be triggering or emotional happens later in the day, y'all already are kind of pre-positioned to handle that in a quieting way versus an escalating way. But um, I appreciate so pot, asking. So my pot of coffee and sports radio out of Boston first thing every morning, probably not, probably not positioning myself too well. <laughs> I would say there are other there are other activities that you could do that might be more quieting. All right, let me get a note on that. Especially, especially after a um, Red Sox or Patriots defeat. Correct, hundred <laughs> percent. But there are a lot of things, like even, even just intentionally, like at lunchtime, just just going out for a walk oh, and yeah. 
walking is very quieting. And especially if you say to yourself before you do that, I got, that's why I'm going to go do this walk. Like just add one more. This That's the purpose for this walk, just to go quiet my mind a little bit, to think about nothing. But again, that's that's this sort of really challenging intersection we are at culturally. Again, we I don't think we're great at relationships and probably more than certainly more than in my lifetime. There are more places to receive noise in your life than ever before. And so if you believe that quieting is essential to have meaningful connections and we're already kind of weren't in many cases weren't raised to kind of get there and do that. And then all of a sudden we're being bombarded with, you know, the internet and evening news and um, even work can get access to us 24 hours a day. So quieting becomes all the more important and finding ways and being committed to doing that. And writing, writing is just something I love to do. Um, Not every morning, but I do it every morning. But to me, it's just become the most enjoyable way to kind of do that quieting routine. Um, Another thing I like to do, I'll do it a lot of times in the middle of the afternoon, I'll just put, put the headphones on and just listen, listen to a song, you know, and, and just really focus on that song and those words and what that is saying to me or doing for me. And just, I ain't going anywhere else. Like, and even it's surprising just five or 10 minutes at a time like that. And it's all again, connected to so many of us are predispositioned because of how our stress was managed early in life to really be triggered by some things that maybe other people wouldn't be. Well, the hope is, I guess, that this podcast becomes a, a vehicle similar where people can tune in and listen and take their minds off of things. Obviously, yeah. we have some, uh, you know, hard-hitting discussions and uh, general topics, but yeah, hopefully th- th- this is an avenue where people can take their minds off of whatever it is for, you know, 45 minutes to an hour and a half and yeah. uh, just kind of escape for for a bit. Yeah. But before we uh, go quiet on this episode, I wanted to ask to you, and this is the, the only pre-recording uh, question that I, I posed to you, and I know you were excited to answer. Uh, but as this uh, show is called The Stuff That Matters, I'm going to ask you that question now. And this is your chance, I guess, to kind of en- encapsulate your overall message. I know you've been doing that throughout this episode. So I'm sure people are listening. They can uh, go back from the beginning and probably answer it themselves for you. But I'm going to pose this question to you now. For you, what is the stuff that matters? It's us. I, my motto these days is um, life is a we thing. And you know, we live in a culture where we, we we sometimes go overboard on convincing people that life's a you thing. Like if you just get tough enough, you can deal with anything. And when you're kind of failing, it's because I'm just not in your nose and in your grill and, and pushing you and convincing you that you can do this. That's one, that's one place we go. The other place we tend to go is like, not life's a you thing, but life's a me thing. And I, I probably go there a lot. Like I can get very self-centered. Like this, this life's about me. And if things aren't going just right, like the, that's not fair to me. Like why, why is the world turning on me? But that's, that's not, that's not healthy either. The only healthy avenue is life is a we thing. Like we are in this thing together. One of the words I'm not a big fan of that gets used in the world I'm in is resilience. 
And it's not because I'm not a fan of resilience, but when I go talk with people a lot, they they think resilience or they'll they'll interpret resilience as this thing, like Mike's Mike's in a bad spot right now. So we got to help Mike kind of pull pull up his bootstraps and get through this thing. Our instinct isn't isn't often like like we all got to circle around Mike. Like we got to get in there with him and walk with him through this thing like like Mike got when he was a baby, when he was having a hard time. People showed up and walked him through the challenges so that with each each growing challenge, he's more capable of handling that. But I don't know. Sometimes I get worried. Like there's this line of thinking like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help the baby. And then there's this like a cutoff point where, okay, like we're done. We need to teach them like this world's about you get out there and you handle this thing. You got to be able to do this on your own. And um, so the stuff that matters to me is like, we are in this together. I think there's some places where we probably could figure out how to do that a little better for each other. And I think the ultimate um, reward for that would be that like, I think the life as a youth thing, I think people are looking like they're just, they've just taken that as their path to try to be happy. And the life is a me thing. Like I'm just looking out for myself. I just want to be happy. And the irony is neither of those are really turning out happy. And so I, how about we start this grand experiment? Like we just all say our happiness depends on being real and being known and being seen and being in life with each other and just kind of see how that goes. So it's a great question. That's why I was fired up. I love, I love, um, and I love, I'm going to love hearing what what other people say on your podcast about the the stuff that matters. So, well, Keith, I'm so happy we got an opportunity to have this conversation today, and um, I couldn't agree with you more about that perspective. Um, life is about us, and I'm happy that uh, I can call you a dear, dear friend. Yeah, and I'm so pleased that you joined us today on the stuff that matters. Yeah, well, Mike, like I said, you and I go back a long way. You've always, like, I've never known you to be anything other than we. The fact that you have spent so much time and poured so much of your, like, new career into New Hope, like, there is no better testimony to me to what New Hope is doing. So, um, yeah, I I appreciate you thinking of me. It's humbling that that you would, um, but very rewarding. And to Patrick's point, I hope it's a conversation that will will touch a life in some way and maybe, maybe more than one. So keep, keep it up, Patrick, keep finding, finding ways to share these dreams of theirs, making them real. The the whole dreams uh, aspect of it is uh, a tough uh, act to follow. It's kind of a a steep praise uh, making dreams come to life, but yeah, trying to take their visions and, uh, uh, you know, a- act on those visions and, you know, make them tangible items. That That's kind of the, the, the goal. If they happen to be dreams and great, but uh, yeah. Well, that's a great example of life's a we thing. Like we're exactly. all limited. Like some of us have ideas, some of, but then like, ain't got no clue how to do this. So. Right. Right. Absolutely. And, that's, and really it's all serious is that holds a lot of people back. They're like, I, I know what I want to do. I just don't know how to do it. So I guess yeah. it can't be right. done. In comes Patrick. <laughs> Here I am. Appreciate it. Well, Keith, thank you so much. You were incredibly gracious with your time and sharing your your experiences. And uh, you know, I can't wait to to share this episode with everybody. Uh, and hopefully, you know, people enjoy. Yeah. 
Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thank you. You can listen to this episode and all episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or you can watch episodes on YouTube. And if you're interested in being a part of the New Hope mission, please visit newhopetreatment.com for more information. Again, that's newhopetreatment.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.